Hey, everybody. This is Krista Stilwell, Communications Assistant at LFCN. Thanks for listening to the podcast. It's a glimpse into the life of our church. We are ordinary people being transformed into passionate followers of Jesus who join with God in the remaking of all things. We pray that what you hear is a blessing and helps you join God today. If our church can help you and serve you in any way, please drop us a line at 765-447-7655. Enjoy the sermon. Hey, good morning. Welcome to worship. My name is Troy. It's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. Man, it's a great day to be with you. Privilege to serve here today. We're going to wrap up our sermon series. Our sermon series is called With is Better Than For. We've been talking about how God's posture towards us and hopefully our posture towards each other is not just that we would be people who are for one another, although we do want to do that, but that we would recognize that God primarily postures himself towards us is that he is with his people. We serve a God who is with his people, and we've talked about the implications of all of what that would mean. And today, I want to conclude by talking about this passage of scripture that I've found just really interesting and challenging and fascinating in John chapter 15. So if you have a Bible or if you have an app on your phone or a device or whatever, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 15. If not, the words will be on the screen for you this morning. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in John chapter 15 and then we're going to make our way to Genesis chapter 12. So John chapter 15 into Genesis chapter 12. You'll understand why we do that in just a moment. And I know you were just standing and and then you sat down again, but would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? John chapter 15, beginning with verse 13. Now, these are the words of Jesus, and Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says this, No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. And then Jesus says this to his disciples, You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father, I have made known to you. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. For quite a bit of time, maybe for months, I've, I've had these words just, just kind of stuck in my gut, stuck in my heart, stuck in my spirit. I've thought about these few short verses a lot, where Jesus says to his disciples, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. It's been lodged in here. Maybe, maybe it's because I grew up but didn't really watch. I grew up with, but never really watched um, that sitcom Friends. Like, that's my era. You know that. You know that thing, right? Joey and Rachel and Chandler and Monica and Phoebe. That, that whole scene. And you know that the show was called Friends 
And the whole point of the show was their friendship together. I feel like in the era in which I grew up, you were either someone who watched Friends or you were someone who watched Seinfeld. And I chose Seinfeld over Friends. Can I get a witness in the house? Everybody's saying no. Y'all, like, y'all really liked Rachel, didn't you? Or Chandler, or Chandler Bing. That's the air that I grew up with. And so maybe, it, maybe friendship is like always in the back of my mind. Maybe it's because a couple months ago I read this incredibly fascinating story um, and that was publishing some research that Cigna Health Insurance did. And Cigna Health Insurance did this massive study of friendship in America and they found that most Americans, most Americans feel lonely. They feel left out. And they feel not known. In fact, it's 60% of Americans feel lonely. Whatever the reason, I've been fascinated with these words from Jesus to his followers. You are my friends. Now, we live in... We live in the self-esteem era. This is the self-esteem era where we're all particularly concerned with having like a well-founded identity, with it knowing exactly who we are. This is the self-esteem era where the identity crisis has moved from midlife to like age 25. And if we don't have X number of things done by then and accomplish this amount of stuff and have this amount of money in our bank account, that we find ourselves asking questions like, who am I? And what does it mean to be me? And my guess is, is that many of the people that I'm talking with this morning, my friends in this room, my, my guess is that many of you are asking those very same questions. Who am I? What does it mean to be me? And I hope to answer that question today by persuading you that before you are anything else, you, you, you are a friend of God. You are a friend of God, or at least that's what G- Jesus says in John chapter 15. He looks at his followers and his disciples and he says, I- I'm not going to call you my servants any longer. I no longer think of you in those ways. Instead, I think of you as friends. You are my friends. That same principle, that same teaching, that same posture of God towards his people is not just limited to the disciples of Jesus in John chapter 15. It extends and it applies to all of us who find ourselves here today who are asking the question, who am I? What does it mean to be me? You are God's friend. But in order to help us to understand what that might mean, like what does it look like? to actually live our life out of the identity of a friend of God, I think we need to turn back to the Old Testament so that we can walk with someone through their life to see how it plays out. And and I'd like to do that with Abraham. So Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And I think that as we walk through the life of Abraham together, we'll get a better sense of what it actually means to live life postured in such a way that our primary identity is that we see ourselves and we understand ourselves to be God's friend. Genesis chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. The Lord said to Abram at that time, that was his name, 
Leave your land, your family, your father's household for the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name respected. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, those who curse you. I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. And Abram did it. He left just as the Lord told him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he left his hometown of Haran. Now here, Abraham is called, quote, the friend of God, end quote. He's called the, the friend of God three times in Scripture. The first happens more than a thousand years after his death. And there's this, it shows up in a prayer. The Hebrew king, King Jehoshaphat, was threatened by an invading army, and he starts to pray to God. And as he prays to God for help, he identifies himself with Abraham, your friend. A few hundred years later, during the devastation of the Babylonian exile, Isaiah brings this prophecy, brings a word of God to the people that identifies himself in this way. Israel, my servant, the offspring of Abraham, your friend. And the third time that Abraham is referred to as a friend of God happens in the New Testament letter of James. So this is way down the line. When James is arguing for the unity of faith and works, he brings Abraham into the argument with the words, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. In fact, if we hopped in a plane this afternoon and we flew to Israel or to Palestine today, we would find the town that is most associated with Abraham, the biblical town most associated with Abraham, the town of Hebron, has been named El Khalil, which is Arabic for the friend. Abraham is remembered more than anyone else as God's friend. So if that's how Abraham is remembered, it might be helpful for us if we want to learn Jesus' words, what it means to be the friend of God. Maybe we need to look at the life of Abraham and see what we can learn. And I want to teach you three things we can learn about our, our identity as friends of God through the life of Abraham. The first is this, and this is pretty self-explanatory. Being a friend is the opposite of being an enemy. Being a friend is the opposite of being an enemy. And that's the contrast that stands out more than anything else in Abraham. Abraham was on such good terms with God that he responded to God without suspicion. He responded to God without fear. He knew somehow that God was with him, that God was friendly toward him. Now, the dominant feeling in our, in our culture and the dominant feeling in which the culture that Abraham grew up was that the gods were distinctly unfriendly. And so here's what happened. There was this whole enterprise, this whole economy, this whole line of business that was built around trying to keep the gods 
happen. And so there were these priests, and the priests of the day worked to try to protect the people from the wrath of God and to make sure that the gods were feeling good. These gods were malicious. They threw temper tantrums from the sky. They had these unpredictable outbursts of anger. They were kind of coldly indifferent sometimes. And so there were these elaborate rituals. It involved sometimes tattoos or sacrifices. It was the biggest business in the Middle East because the gods were mysterious and dark forces that you couldn't count on. You just couldn't rely on them. So you had to make them happy. And not much has changed in our culture. For us, maybe the gods have been made like a little bit less sacred and more secular. But the primary sense of people who are driving around on the roads of our county this morning, the primary feeling are feelings of anxiety, of guilt, of indifference. We are as wary today as the people of Abraham's day We live in a world full of forces that can't be anticipated or controlled, whether those forces are cancer or accidents or guns. There is this undercurrent of fear that results in us believing that God is against us. He's an enemy. Now, I don't say this often, but I need to say this clearly this morning. That is wrong. That is wrong. And one of my assignments as your pastor is to tell you it's wrong and to tell you why it's wrong. And there are things to be apprehensive in this, of in this world. Maybe even th- some things to have a healthy fear of in this world. Maybe even some people in this world who will endanger your safety and security, but God is not one of them. This is why we need the imagination of Abraham. Abraham stands out as a person who, above everybody else, rose above the commonplace level of terror of his times, and he understood that God's posture towards him was as a friend. Abraham knew that God was with him and for him and not against him. And he lived his life with this attitude and in this atmosphere that was charged with the divine goodness of that belief. And it's not because he lived a charmed life. It's not because all of the dominoes were lined up in place in his life and somebody just had to flick the first one over and all of the pieces fell into place. It's not that at all. To be a friend of God doesn't mean that everything in your life is cozy. To be a friend of God doesn't mean that like you pamper or you indulge yourself. Friendship by nature is struggle. It's loss. It's tension. It's turbulence. One of my favorite lines from the book of Proverbs is Proverbs 27 verse 6. And it says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend, if that friend is honest and true, will tell you things you don't want to hear. A friend, if that friend is committed and serious about you, will do things to you that feel painful. And God's friendship with Abraham meant that God told him, hey, 
leave your family. Leave your homeland. Leave your security and your safety system and your wealth and your resources. Leave it all behind at the age of 75 years old so that you can head on this uncertain and unpredictable journey west. So his secure, prosperous life was abandoned because God said to him, go. And he never had an easy life. He never had an easy life. It was decades of infertility. He lived through a famine. He suffered the expulsion of his own children from the household. He endured the trauma of offering his son as a sacrifice. He engaged in agonizing daily intercession for his nephew Lot. I mean, it's not like God's friendship placed Abraham in this oasis in the desert where he slept on a hammock that was strung between palms and he refreshed himself by swimming like laps in the pool between naps and checking Instagram all day. God's friendship for Abraham meant leaving home, long journeys, danger, doubt. It was difficult obedience. And through all of this, Abraham knew something that defined his identity. God was with him, and God was his friend. In fact, there's one line in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6. I didn't read it this morning. There's one line that, to me, jumps off the page and describes, describes the journey of Abraham. So God says to him in the verses that we read, go and leave, go and leave. And if you do this, here's these wonderful things that will happen. And then it ends in verse 4 with the Abraham leaving and doing what God asks him to do. And so now he's on his journey into the place where he is headed. It says this in chapter 12, verse 6, at that time, the Canaanites were occupying the land. So he has just made, he's just left everything that he knew behind. And he's making this long and difficult journey to the land that God has for him. And it's already occupied. People are already living there. There's economies and trade deals that are already in place. It wasn't this unsettled, pioneer-like land where he could go and set it up just as God had always dreamed him to do. It was taken. Friendship with God isn't about exemption from struggle. It's not that at all. That's the first thing we learn. And the second thing we learn is this. It's totally about a relationship. It's totally about a relationship. It's not about a function at all. Friendship with God is always 100% about relationship and 0% about a function. There's this everyday, ordinary quality to it. To be a friend, to have a friend, means you are with people. And you're with people not simply for what they can do for you or what they can offer to you. You're with them for who they are. And I don't know if you've ever met someone And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, maybe I could be friends with this person. And then pretty quickly after you meet them, you realize that their intention in meeting you 
wasn't to be a friend with you simply for who you are. Their intention in meeting you was for what you could offer to them, for the skills that you have, or for the resources that you have at your disposal, or for the the network that you offer that they could tap into. And all of a sudden, you realize that's not a friend at all. That's somebody who's looking to use you. If we suspect that we are singled out for someone's friendship because of what we can do for that person, we want nothing to do with it. And same is true in our relationship with God. God approaches Abraham to be his friend, not so that he can network with Abraham and not so that Abraham can network with God. There's no hint in this story that Abraham considered God's friendship an invitation into like the world of celebrities. Abraham doesn't respond like, oh man, I'm God's friend. That opens up like his contact list is unending. Think of all of the people he could get me in touch with. None of that exists. Abraham was purely motivated by relationship. God was purely motivated by relationship. They weren't motivated by function at all. Abraham was not in love with a dream. He wasn't aspiring after an ideal. He was God's friend. Period. And their relationship was worked out along the journey of life and at places where Abraham stopped to get water and times where he built an altar. And he built an altar in a lot of places. Every time that he had a moment, he shared a moment with God, the first thing that he did is he stopped and he designated that place as a place where God heard me and I heard God and God listened to me. But he didn't just build an altar one time in his life and then always go back to that place to try to connect with the God who met him in that place. He built an altar wherever he went in the world. It wasn't like he had one moment at one time when he was younger, you know, like 77. And then when he was 97, he needed to revisit that moment. So he made a pilgrimage back to that place to try to like conjure up all of the stuff that happened again. Everywhere he went and every time he met with God, the first thing that he did is he built an altar to designate that spot in his life as holy. It was daily. It was regular, it was frequent, and he used whatever stones he could find on whatever ground he was in to mark that spot in his life. Why? Because that is how friendship works. Friends remember one another. Friends think of each other, both in common ways and uncommon ways. Friends text each other or message each other or call each other on the spur of the moment. Friends get in touch with each other on special days. They hang out simply because they enjoy each other's company. Things don't have to get done in a friendship. It's not a way of accomplishing something. It's just a way of being with each other. And check this out. Being God's friend didn't mean that like Abraham was like heroically this person of virtue and like above average in his capacity for piety. 
he was like untainted by sin. It's not true at all. Abraham lied to protect his own skin in exchange for his wife's reputation. He laughed at God when the divine promises that God was giving to him seemed crazy. He played the coward with Abimelech. What friendship means is that two people are in touch with each other. And they want the same things. And they share common interests. And that's what the friendship of God and Abraham was all about. Abraham was in touch with God. And God was in touch with Abraham. He accepted God's concern for him as the single defining reality of his life. And he returned it by making God the center of his life. He obeyed. He journeyed. He prayed. He built altars. He believed. And he did none of it perfectly. He did none of it perfectly. Perfect is not a word that we use to describe things that are alive. Perfect is a word that we use to describe a circle or a straight line, like it's perfectly straight. Perfect is a word we use to describe dead things. We don't use perfect to describe people. Instead, we use words like growth and response and development. And Abraham did all of these things with God because he was convinced and he was determined to grow in his capacity of friendship toward him. The single defining reality of his life was that God has approached him like a friend. I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking back to Jesus' words in John chapter 15, where he says to his disciples who are anything but perfect, If I could paraphrase, I think what he says is, hey, fellas, I don't look at you like you're my servants. I look at you like we're friends. We're with each other. I'm with you. I want more than anything else for you to be with me. Not for what you can get out of me, not for the resources to which I can provide to you, not so that someday you can come into a position of power as you ride my coattails. I'm here to be with you because I am committed to you and I enjoy your company. And I would love nothing more for you to desire to be with me for no other reason than you enjoy my company. And how about my friendship and your friendship with me becomes the single defining reality in your life. Someone would, were to ask you today, who are you? Who are you? And you were to respond in a Christian answer, right? Let's say that before you, like you gave your, you know, I'm, I'm Troy or whoever. But then you're like, no, really, tell me who you are. And you think to yourself, well, I know that, I, okay, I was raised in the church. I'm, I'm taught to say I am a child of God. That's true. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. What if, though, the single motivating factor, your primary identity, 
would become. You know, I'm, I'm not sure who I am, but I know that God says, I'm his friend. I'm his friend. Think about how that changes things. Sons and daughters serve their mom and dad out of some sense of hierarchical authority. Friends don't serve each other. Friends are with each other because they enjoy each other's company. Jesus said, you are my friends. You, as you are, are the friends of God himself. He enjoys your company. He likes to hang out with you. He enjoys being present with you. You know the weird things you do that even annoy your spouse? He's cool with that. He enjoys it. He takes joy in those things. And sometimes you drive him crazy just like your best friend drives you crazy. And when you're wrong, he'll tell you you're wrong. Just like your best friend will tell you you're wrong when you're wrong. But he's committed to you, to never leaving you to always be ever-present and steadfast towards you. And what he wants more than anything else is for his people to approach him out of relationship and not function. Out of solidarity and not fear. He's the God of the universe the maker of the whole world, the sovereign Lord over all creation, the crucified and the resurrected one, this is the miracle of it all, approaches us and says, let's be friends. Let's be friends. And when we take him up on the offer, what we realize is that our entire life is reoriented around the love the grace, the wholeness, the healing that we receive as a result of that relationship.